Today's scripture reading is from Philippians. It's uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 14, and this is from the New Common English Bible. Though I have good reason to have this kind of confidence, if anyone else has reason to put their confidence in physical advantages, I have even more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. With respect to observing the law, I am a Pharisee. With respect to devotion to the faith, I harassed the church. With respect to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. These things were my assets, but I wrote them off as a loss for the sake of Christ. But even beyond that, I consider everything a loss in comparison with the superior value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have lost everything for him, but what I lost I think of as sewer trash, so that I might gain Christ and be found in him. In Christ, I have a righteousness that is not my own, and that does not come from the law, but rather from the faithfulness of Christ. It is the righteousness of God that it is the righteousness of God that is based on faith. The righteousness that I have that I have comes from knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings. It includes being conformed to his death, so that I may perhaps reach the goal of the resurrection of the dead. It's not that I have already reached this goal or have already been perfected, but I pursue it so that I may grab hold of it because Christ grabbed hold of me for just this purpose. Brothers and sisters, I myself don't think I've reached it, but I do this one thing. I forget about the things behind me and reach out for the things ahead of me. The goal I pursue is the prize of God's upward call in Jesus Christ. Our gospel reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. And this again is coming from the translation of the Common English Bible. Open your ears, minds, and hearts to hear. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Then he rented it to tenant farmers and took a trip. When it was time for harvest, he sent his servants to the tenant farmers to collect his fruit. But the tenant farmers grabbed his servants. They beat some of them, and some of them they killed. Some of them they stoned to death. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first group, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said, but when the tenant farmers saw the son coming, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come on, let's kill him, and we'll have his inheritance. They grabbed him, 
threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when the owner of the vineyard comes, and so Jesus says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he I'm so sorry. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenant farmers? They said he will totally destroy those wicked farmers and rent the vineyard to other tenant farmers who will give him the fruit when it's ready. Jesus said to them, Haven't you ever read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it's amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that God's kingdom will be taken away from you and will be given to the people who produce its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be crushed, and the stone will crush the person it falls on. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parable, They knew Jesus was talking about them. They were trying to arrest him, but they feared the crowds who thought he was a prophet. The word of the Lord. Some of you may have used uh, for a vacation or work an Airbnb. It's a rental company. Similar company would be VRBO, Vacation Rental by Owner. And maybe you rented a home on the beach or a cabin in the mountains, an apartment in a city. I hope if you did, your experiences were good. I know it doesn't always work out for everyone. The few times I've rented property for vacation, I've had very good experiences. The places were clean, well-equipped, and the owners were accessible. If I had a question or concerns, I could reach them, and they responded quickly. When I stay, I try to respect the property and the rules. I mean, I am a short-term tenant. Renting the property means I'm obligated to follow the rules. I make sure the place is the same as when I arrived. To be frank... I, make, I think I'm motivated to get a good review. I want to be a good guest so that the owner will mark that down on my profile. It's like saying, we created this space so you could enjoy your vacation, and we appreciate that you were respectful of our property. You see, the reviews are specific. The one I write is about the property and its owner. It it reflects directly on the owner. The one written for me as the guest is specifically about me. There's no one else it applies to. And I thought about this as I read and reflected on the gospel reading for today. The gospel passage, after all, is titled The Parable of the Tenant Farmers. Now, it is important not to confuse the parable for an allegory. Many people have written about parables as allegories, but unlike an allegory in which many details with deeper meanings than the story on the surface really reveals, a parable has a single meaning and every 
detail is there to reinforce that meaning. In today's parable, the chief priests and Pharisees knew what Jesus meant this parable to say, and it was directly to them. I think that reading scripture as independent of the context can make it difficult for today's reader and listener to consider what it means for their life. So, please allow me to set a scene. In Matthew, as in other synoptic gospels, the scene is set near the end of Jesus' ministry. And from the previous chapter, we know this encounter is happening at the temple after Jesus has returned to Jerusalem for Passover. There are great crowds, and Jesus has been received by them with a celebratory welcome. Think Palm Sunday. Jesus has had several exchanges with the priests and Pharisees to this point, and they keep trying to trick him, goad him, to say something that would incriminate him so they could kill him. Just before this parable, Jesus is, in, is inquired by the chief priests, scribes, and elders with a, with a question. By what authority are you doing these things? That's in Matthew chapter 20, verse 2. And Jesus speaking directly to them. The details of the parable are very simple. The landowner establishes a vineyard and provides everything needed to make it work. He then went back to his own country, which was a common situation in the Roman Empire. The tenants were in charge of production, paying rent in the form of sharing the produce. So far, so good. But before we look at the details, let's set the identifications down. This is how we often interpret the various characters. The vineyard is Israel. The landowner is God. The tenants are the religious leaders who were charged by God with the welfare of Israel. The servants were the prophets sent by God throughout Israel's history. And the son, wait for it, is none other than Jesus. And we tend to get stuck on these details and focus on the way that in this short parable, Jesus captures the character of God and of man. It tells of God's trust in men, leaving them to complete the work without direct or police-like supervision. It tells of human privilege. We are equipped with everything we need. It tells of God's patience. When the owner's slaves arrive to collect his share of the produce, the tenants attack them. The owner of the vineyard simply sent another delegation of slaves to collect the rent? Hmm. That doesn't feel like normal human behavior. Those slaves were treated even worse than the first. Surely by now the owner would send in troops or some form of armed men to enforce his rights. But no. Instead, he sends his son, thinking by some logic that the tenants who have abused two delegations of slaves will respect 
the owner's son and heir. Just as we do not understand the mind of God in human thinking, that seems kind of foolish. And in similar idiocy, the tenants reason that if they kill the son, they will get the inheritance. Yeah, that seems pretty foolish too. This parable also tells of human freedom. God lets them do as they thought best, even being clueless to how ridiculous their notion was to kill the son. How often have we seen behavior and attitudes that appear to be deliberately the opposite of God's direction? And it tells of God's judgment. And here is where Jesus brings it home. Jesus asks his audience, and remember, he had been teaching in the temple to the people, but now he's speaking directly to the Pharisees, the priests, and the elders. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenant farmers? If you were to stop right there, does the answer seem obvious? Well, it did to the Pharisees and the elders. And they offered up quickly, he will totally destroy those wicked farmers and rent the vineyard to other tenant farmers who will give him the fruit when it's ready. And there is the catch. The chief priests and elders probably saw themselves in the role of the landowner. Now remember, because we have the information, we see God as the landowner. Have they replaced God? Because they would actually be able to own land at that time and to have others manage it for them. They would see the servants as their subordinates, and they actually would see themselves as the victims of the corrupt tenants. So they would be ready and even eager to pronounce judgment on them. But, as I identified, we read the parable seeing God as the landowner, the temple leaders as the evil tenants, the group of servants as Israel prophets, and Jesus as the son. And we, in turn, are the other tenants to whom the vineyard will be given. Now, we can leave today and think it's easier to see the parable as a call to be good stewards of God's creation or to recognize the attributes of a loving, patient, forgiving God. But before we conclude that this is the best way to approach this parable, let's step back. Jesus was quick to remind the priests and elders of the scriptures, which they obeyed in a literal but not heartfelt way. Haven't you ever read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's amazing in our eyes. This is from Psalm 118, verse 22. And the key point of this parable, and why the dramatic switch from the vineyard to the cornerstone is because it's all about 
rejection. First, the tenants reject the owner by rejecting the entire sharecropping arrangement. Then, the tenants reject the owner's emissaries and servants. Finally, they reject even his heir, the owner's only son. Breath of relief, but true to form, a God, our God is about to do a double reversal. Switcheroo. The son who got rejected will emerge as a highly powerful figure who will, in turn, reject the rejectors. The rejected one is now the cornerstone of God's people. A cornerstone. What image comes to mind for you? I recently visited some very old and beautiful structures. On your screen, you'll see one that I had an opportunity to see, visit. I visited castles and churches dating back two, three, four hundred years. And the cornerstone wasn't always marked, but the structure still retained some of the original wall. You see, a cornerstone is an important part of a building, especially in ancient times, because it serves as a principal stone placed at a corner of a structure to guide the workers in their course to complete the stonework. If a cornerstone is not followed, the path of construction will likely end up in ruin. So I... I pondered this question. What does a cornerstone mean to me? And it brought me to a place where I looked to the cornerstone of my relationships. When I was growing up, still immature in my faith, my cornerstone was my mom. Her behavior was my guide. My mom had such a strong faith, and I've come to know that her cornerstone was Jesus. In her quiet but spiritual way, she placed that stone at the structure of her family, and it remains a guide and a strength. The Pharisees of Jesus' time needed to know they had lost sight of the cornerstone. They had been so caught up with their power and position, they mistook their leadership over Israel for outright ownership of Israel. The parable serves to show how the temple leaders rejected God. It also prophesies their violent rejection of the Son, Jesus. They got the parable, but they rejected the truth. Yes, we are God's tenants, but we are not those tenants. And you are certainly not God's son, and you're not God. What they do know is that God has appointed them as leaders, 
and that this Jesus has attacked their authority. They cannot see, for they have lost their sight of what God's will for the world really is. So in their eyes, Jesus' ministry can only be a scandal. Now, we can be too quick to judge the Pharisees and elders, and we should avoid standing behind Jesus, waving our accusatory fingers. Instead, we should put ourselves in their shoes and risk being confronted by what Jesus has to say. As Matthew's audience, it is easy to ridicule the chief priests and elders, Matthew has made the truth of Christ obvious obvious to us who already believe. Yet, when we step back from the gospel and examine ourselves, we will inevitably find glimpses of the rejecting and self-serving tenants. The issue is one of returning to God what belongs to God. For anyone called by God to a particular ministry, namely everyone, there is the temptation to claim ownership of that ministry, to confuse service with entitlement. For us, the moment the sense of entitlement creeps into our ministry is the moment we have closed ourselves off, rejected, what Christ is doing in the world. In that scenario, we no longer serve Christ. We protect ourselves from him. Just as Paul had to shed his belief that the cornerstone of his purpose was dependent on his identity as a Jew and as a strict follower of the law, Paul disclosed that all his life He had been seeking a right relationship with God. And this could be attained through adherence to the law. Paul discovered that a right relationship with God was based not on the law, but on faith in Christ, not achieved by any man, but given by God, not won by works, but accepted in trust by accepting what God offers us. But it takes faith to accept that. Not rejection, but acceptance. And the cornerstone guides us. I'll keep the image of the cornerstone with me and imagine that it will be there long after I'm gone. I know I need the cornerstone because I know I can be pulled in many directions, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And I ask you to consider this week what a cornerstone means to you. If you are tempted to measure your self-worth by others' opinions, look to your cornerstone to find your value and truth. If circumstances feel out of control, look to your cornerstone to find peace in the chaos. If your anger rises 
because you are being treated unfairly, look to your cornerstone before you react. Again and again and again, remember that which your life and reality is built on. I'm going to say that again. Remember that which your life and reality is built on. And as you do, allow that first stone laid, Christ, to set every other stone that is laid behind it. Amen.